0: Today, I'm glad to welcome onto the show, Scott Klusendorf. Scott is the president of Life Training Institute, where he trains pro-life advocates to persuasively defend their views. A passionate and engaging platform speaker, Scott's pro-life presentations have been featured by Focus on the Family, Truth That Transforms, and American Family Radio. Today, I'm glad to have him on to discuss uh, the second edition of his book, The Case for Life. Scott, welcome to the show.
1: Aaron, I'm privileged to be with you.
0: Well, I'm privileged to have you on. I've been wanting to have you on for uh, for a while, and so uh, it is great to be able to have you on the show. Let's start by just talking about uh, your your story. How did you get into the work of training Christians to think about uh, the pro-life issue and then also engaging in the culture, uh, doing training? Uh, w- what led to that, and uh, and how long have you been doing that?
1: Well, the story really begins in November of 1990, Aaron, I had always been pro-life. There was never a time in my life where I thought abortion was permissible, morally or legally. But I wasn't lifting a finger to stop the killing. Until a local pregnancy center director at a pro-life center started bugging me and bugging me to get more involved. And God bless Lois, she just would not go away. And I was at the time an associate minister at a church in Southern California, and she just kept after me and tried to get me roped into more of what they were doing. And one day she said, listen, uh, in a couple of weeks, we have a Saturday morning event with a speaker I think you would really like. He's a former member of the Reagan administration. He's a lawyer. He's going to lay out a case for the pro-life view. You will like him because he's very intelligent and methodical. And I thought, yeah, I'll go to that. And by the way, 300 other pastors from my area were invited to this event. And I thought, oh, there'll be a whole bunch of us there. Well, I showed up. It was me and four other guys and their wives. And that was it. But thankfully, the speaker, Greg Cunningham, gave a very persuasive defense of the pro-life view. And I thought, I like this guy. He doesn't hurt the brain to listen to. Because honestly, Aaron, I had heard some pro-life speakers that I went, ah, that's just not hitting over the target the way it needs to. This guy, though, was spot on. But then he did something that fundamentally changed the entire trajectory of my life. He showed an eight-minute video depicting abortion. I had never seen abortion, Aaron, and I sat there and wept and thought, I am no different than the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road. They say they care about this issue, but they weren't lifting a finger to stop it that's me. I got to change that. So I went home and I took the VHS tape. He showed VHS tapes were these rectangular things we used to use to show movies on. And I showed that to my wife and she sat there brokenhearted like I was and said, well, whatever we end up doing here, I'm along for the ride. So here Hmm. we are 33 years later now, um, working full-time to try to equip believers to make a case for the the pro-life view in the public square.
0: Interesting. So what was the first step? to getting into that in, Well, into the first that, uh, step field.
1: was I had to bug the guy that spoke, Greg Cunningham, and I just kept bugging him until he put me on his staff. And that was the first step. But the other thing I did, and this is something all of us should do as pro-life Christians, I devoured good books on the subject. I read articles. I'd go bury myself in the UCLA research library and pull up everything I could on the subject, read got equipped so that I could engage intelligently. And I think that's part of what it means to love God with our minds, to be equipped intellectually to engage the arguments that are taking the, the members of the culture astray.
0: Absolutely. And so during this time, whenever you really started to engage more, who were some of the primary voices, uh, books that you were using to equip yourself and then you know be able to engage well in the fight?
1: Well, at the time, there wasn't the the plethora of scholarly literature on the pro-life side like there is today. Mm -hmm. So the early books I read were Bernard Nathanson's book, Aborting America, John T. Noonan's book, A Private Choice, Abortion in America in the 70s and 80s, and then a handful of scholarly articles by Frank Beckwith, who wrote a great series of articles that eventually became a book of his called Defending Life. But in those scholarly articles that he published in journals, he would systematically defend the pro-life view against specific arguments against it. And what I loved about it is he really taught me how to think on this issue. He would identify the common fallacies. He would point out why they don't work. He would then argue about how we ought to make our case. And I found it tremendously clarifying to listen to somebody who was an academic who understood this issue, and Francis Beckwith is as good as they come on the pro-life issue from an intellectual standpoint. So that was very helpful to me early on.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. And so you started doing this sometime in the early 90s? Yeah, I started at the
1: end of, really, the beginning of 1991, I began. And uh, it took a few years, honestly, to get funding raised, because I had to raise my own support to... You know, pay the bills. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's not an easy thing to go to people and say, you know, I'm going to work full time as a a pro-life apologist. Well, what's that? That doesn't have the same ring to it as someone that says, I'm going to Bangladesh for seven years. I hope to come back alive. And maybe I will if you support me. It's a very different thing. People weren't thinking about why do we need pro-life apologists like they are more so now. But back then, that was a new thing. And it, it took some doing to convince people it was worth investing their ministry dollars in. But thanks to the Lord's faithfulness, I did raise support and took a lot of time establishing myself as a speaker. And this is something I think a lot of young, aspiring Christians miss. They think that just because they feel passionate about something, that the money's going to come in and everything's going to be okay. No, you got to go out there and pound the pavement and do The hard work of convincing people that the work you want to do is worth their support. And that's not an ungodly thing to do. It actually builds character when you do that and and do it right. And it helped me become more tenacious, more courageous. And listen, if you're not afraid to ask people for money to support your work, you're certainly not going to be afraid of hostile audiences.
0: Hmm. That's a good point sometimes fundraising is even scarier than the uh it is audience yeah
1: i'd yeah. rather stand in front of a group of 600 raging pro-abortion students than i would have to go ask you to support my work that's true
0: <laughs> i understand uh i'll tell you before i was a church planner and so i've had to do fundraising and uh that is difficult work those who are called to it and do it well are uh are unicorns they're rare yeah um so you've been in the pro-life apologist uh, arena for roughly 32 years now over those 32 years how have you seen the pro-life movement grow shift change um do well not do well you know what's been your experience over 32 years obviously yeah. two years ago uh well a year and a half ago we had the overturning of roe v wade we'll get to that next but so I guess up to the overturning, how did you see the pro-life movement uh, grow and shape? Here's as it where
1: went? we've changed for the better. There is a serious understanding now within pro-life ranks that we need apologists and people equipped to engage the culture at the worldview level on this issue. If you used the phrase pro-life apologetics 30 years ago, nobody knew what you meant. They had heard of Christian apologetics. Yeah, we've heard of the guys out there like J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig and others who are doing great work, maybe Josh McDowell. But when you try to apply that term to the pro-life issue in particular, that wasn't the image that came into people's minds. All they saw were bullhorns and signs. They didn't understand that there were Christians that wanted to engage the issue at the worldview level. That has changed. In fact, pro-lifers now more than ever have a— a series of apologists. They have some very solid talking points they're using, and I think they know what the arguments are that they need to engage with more than they did 30 years ago. That's the good part. The downside is, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we are all now needing to be pro life apologists because the issue has been returned to the states. And I think there's been this assumption out there, Aaron that people have thought, well, if we could just get the federal courts out of the way on this issue, we can win this. The the two problems we face, so the argument went, was a hostile court and a hostile press. If we get rid of those two, we're going to be home free. And now we know that's not the case. We face a worldview struggle, and I'm convinced, Aaron, the majority of Americans disagree with us right now, not agree with us. Our problem isn't the courts. It isn't the media per se. It's that the citizens we live and work with day in and day out don't agree with us at the fundamental worldview issue, and we're going to have to engage that as as proficient pro-life Christians. Mm,
0: That's a really, really good point. And so as i mentioned before and, and you mentioned roe v wade was overturned in the dobbs decision uh roughly a year and a half ago that was in yep june that's of a good thing. 21 absolutely yeah we on this podcast we celebrate that yeah. uh absolutely a good thing leading up to dobbs i remember hearing some things about it in different podcasts that i follow a, little, uh, a headline here and there in the news but not thinking much of it and even the uh podcast that i follow who were talking about it, they are all staunchly pro-life. You know, they didn't have very high hopes because I think that the people in the pro-life movement who have been in for a while had seen so many different (laughs) disappointments and tiny compromises that we would call a win. So they just didn't expect much. You know, but then the leak came out. Yeah. The the leak was released and everyone realized this might be, this might be it. And uh, another month went by i think it was a month maybe a month and a half went by and it was made official walk us through your experience uh in that period uh the the dobbs trial being coming up the decision being uh deliberated and then uh what were you expecting were your hopes high were you expecting it to be maybe another tiny compromise or just a letdown and then what did you think whenever the leak came out did you think it to be authentic uh, just you being in the the movement for 30 years, I'm really, really interested to get a window into uh, your thoughts and experience in that period right before uh, the Dobbs decision came out.
1: Well, I was one of the optimists. I was convinced that the court was going to have to strike Roe and Casey, and here's why. the The question before the court in the Dobbs decision was this. Can a state limit abortion before fetal viability? Can it restrict it? And the court clearly wanted to uphold that, but the problem was Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were legal precedents that said, no, a state cannot do that before viability. So in order to uphold abortion restrictions pre-viability, The court was going to have to get rid of rowan casey that forbid doing that so i wasn't surprised at all that they tossed rowan casey if they Mm. didn't they'd have a huge mess on their hands how do you end up with a spaghetti decision that makes no sense to anybody that is all messed up and jingled and where's the moral line of argument here where's the legal line of argument they had to overturn casey or, and Roe, or they had to toss the, the Dobbs case out. There really wasn't a middle ground for them to go in. Now, I do think they could have gone further. They could have, instead of simply returning the issue to the state, they could have gone further and said, wait a minute, the unborn have a natural right to life that is pre-political. The courts shouldn't be involved governing that. The state shouldn't be involved. The the legislative and executive branches shouldn't be involved. The unborn have a natural right, meaning pre-political, in virtue of their humanity. We're not arguing that fetuses should have the right to drive or the right to hold a college degree, things you only gain through age or accomplishment. We're arguing they have a basic right not to be intentionally killed, without rendering reasons that would justify the killing. That's all we're arguing here. And I wish the court would have at least given a nod to that, but they didn't. They made it strictly along the lines of, hey, we're gonna return this to the states. It's not something the court should co-opt as the sole arbiter of abortion. They're right on that, but they could have gone further and really Mm. made a difference because the central issue in this debate is who counts as one of us. When we talk about, as Joe Biden does, abortion is good for, quote, everyone. Well, Mr. President, does everyone include the unborn? Is abortion good for them? He just assumes they're not human. And I think the court could have gone a long ways further in making that debate clear to the American people, because I think a lot of people just look at this strictly in the framework of taking away away a choice. But choice to do what? Well we know the answer choice to intentionally kill an innocent human being and we shouldn't be doing that and the court could have taken us further along that road I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. So essentially that's the the conflict that's going to be waged state to state now, right? Is the uh, is that further step that the court didn't take.
1: Yeah. And it's going to be waged a couple of different ways first through the state houses that are by and large enacting some pretty good pro-life bills right now, many of them. But whenever this has been set before the public as a direct vote issue, we've lost. We're 0 for 8 since Roe. We've got cast down. We lost mm. in Kentucky. We lost in uh, in um, Kansas. We lost in Montana, where they couldn't even bring themselves to vote to protect children who survive abortion procedures. And then we've lost in blue states where it's been put to the public. And barring a miracle, we're going to lose in Ohio this November, where, again, it's going to be put to the public. Should abortion rights be enshrined in the state constitution as a right that nobody can touch? And overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelmingly, the public is saying, yeah, we want that. We're not happy that Roe v. Wade got overturned. And this is what I mean when when I say we have a worldview struggle in front of us. The public does not agree with us that the unborn are human, and they don't agree with us that moral truth is real and knowable. They think it's a matter of private religious faith, and therefore they don't want to impose one religious perspective on someone else who holds a different one. And this debate is moving away from the key issue, what is the unborn? That's the question we need to resolve. And as pro-life Christians, we need to make sure that question is front and center in this debate.
0: Absolutely, I agree. One of the questions that you ask in your book and and then answer is the question, what does it mean to be pro-life? And I think that that is an important question to ask because uh, there's debate even over what does that mean. Does it mean that we are, to be pro-life is to be someone who uh, fights against the industry and act of abortion, or does it mean to be someone who cares about a uh, whole of life? People will say sometimes we, yeah, we care about abortion, but we are also uh, concerned about immigration. We are concerned about um, widows. You know, like everything that falls under the umbrella of life. On the face of it, it sounds persuasive because if we're pro-life, well, then we're pro uh, all that. Uh, but on the one, but on the other hand, that seems to then uh, kind of water down what it means to be pro-life. So what is your answer to that question?
1: Well, here's the question I always start with when people bring this up. How does it follow that because you oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being, you have to take on everything that's wrong with society? I mean, imagine me saying to the American Cancer Society, you have no right to call yourself a medical institution when you only treat one disease instead of all of them. I mean, nobody would say that to the American Cancer Society, but they do say it to pro-lifers. Nobody says to an anti-child trafficking ministry, you have no right to call yourself a child ministry when you only care about kids being trafficked and not kids in third world countries and kids from divorce homes and kids that are struggling with educational goals. Nobody says that to other ministries, but they all say it to pro-lifers. And quite frankly, it's unfair. And I, for one, won't stand for it. I'm going to push back on it because it's true that as a Christian, Aaron, I will care about a lot of issues. I will care about sex trafficking. I will care about the fair treatment of immigrants. I will care about the poor. I will want to do something to relieve poverty. That's all true. But just because my Christian ethic is broad and inclusive does not mean the operational objectives of the pro-life movement must be so. Uh, That's just an unfair thing to put on us. And by the way— it will never work. It's all a big smokescreen. Let's say we did everything our critics demand. We take on every issue they're saying we have to take on. Equitable pay for, for women, uh, relieving poverty, better education, making sure schools work well, making sure we provide free medical care for poor families. Take all the issues they always say you can't be pro-life if you don't take these other things on. If we did all of them, would our critics become pro-life Not in a billion years. They would still support abortion, and then we'd find out what they really believe. It's not that they think that pro-lifers are too narrow. It's that they believe abortion is a fundamental right that should be available for any reason. And this is nothing but a big smokescreen designed to dilute the pro-life effort, call us off our message, and dilute our resources so that we don't have funds to save children.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's it's a sad. Great I must add,
1: it's sad yeah. to see some Christian leaders do this. I've seen mm-hmm. Christian leaders say, "We got to move from pro-life to whole life, and we got to be womb to the tomb, or we have no legitimacy." That's garbage. We can fight back against that. Nobody's saying that to other ministries who focus on a specific uh, issue of injustice, only to pro-lifers. And I think we can stand our ground and say, "Wait a minute." How does it follow that because we oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being, we have to take on all these other issues? As individual Christians, we'll care about a lot of issues. But when you tell the pro-life movement your fundamental operational objectives need to be womb to the tomb, or we don't think you're legitimate, that's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Uh, I've always felt as though whenever that objecti- uh, objection is raised well then my answer is that I just completely reject the premise of your objection. The the idea that I can't uh, be fully committed as a pro-life Christian uh, without also caring about those other issues. Uh, I mean, nobody goes
1: to the other side and says you call yourself pro-choice, but you're not pro-choice on taxation. You're not pro-choice on parents having the freedom to choose the schools they want to send their kids to. So you're not really pro-choice. You're just pro-abortion. Nobody says that to them, but they will say it to pro-lifers, and it's unfair.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they're uh, they're trying to turn us into a, a straw man, you know, or yeah. make us get into a straw man costume that they've designed for you and then defend yourself once they've put you in that position. And I think that a lot of Christians, especially young Christians, you know, my age in my demographic, younger even, um, it's easy for them to uh, – I don't want to say fall into it. It makes it sound, <laughs> it makes it sound worse than it is, but like, you know, it's easy for him to, to fall into that argument because you know no one likes being accused of not caring about orphans or uh, caring about um, right. poverty and these other issues. And so uh, rhetorically, it's, it's effective.
1: Well, guys like Shane Claiborne, John Pavlovitz have made a, a cottage industry out of this. They don't Mm. attack the pro-life argument and refute it. They attack individual pro-lifers and say, oh, you're inconsistent because you're not taking on every issue under the sun. And sadly, a lot of younger Christians who haven't been trained to think critically, they don't know how to analyze arguments. They fall for the rhetoric, exactly as you say. And it sounds good until you actually think about it. Then you go, wait a minute, this is nonsense. But you have to take that moment to say, wait a minute, is this a real argument, or is this just an attempt to shamefully slander the pro-life cause? I would argue, as one author put it, it's really a lazy slander of the pro-life cause. Mm. It's not even an intelligent one. It's lazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before the need to engage this issue on the level of worldview, and I love that. That's one of the reasons I want to have you on this show, because this is— I call the, I consider this a worldview podcast. And so what are the worldview issues, uh, and how do we engage on the level of worldview in this debate?
1: Yeah, and just to back up a little bit, by worldview, I mean the glasses through which you see reality. And everybody mm-hmm. has a worldview, whether they know it or not. And as my colleague John Stone Street likes to point out, if you have a bad worldview, it's going to have victims that go with it. And that's true, certainly, on this issue of abortion. But all worldviews have to answer five basic questions. they got to answer the question of metaphysics. What is ultimate reality? What's ultimately real? It has to answer the question of epistemology. How do we know things? Thirdly, it's got to answer the question of anthropology. What does it mean to be human? And is human nature fixed or fluid? Can we do whatever we want with it? Or should we be following some natural limits as to what being human is then there's the question of ethics and morality what's wrong with us and what's the fix and then everybody's asking the cosmological question how did we get here where's history going and you know what is it all how's this all going to end it, does it end in revolution restoration how does it end yeah. these five worldview questions are there whether you're an atheist or a christian and the the question for us is biblically grounded christian is does our worldview get a good hearing? And often it doesn't because we don't take time to engage people at the worldview level. You start talking to somebody who's pro-abortion and you're a Christian and you're talking about how every life is precious and uh, every life has dignity and value. And the person across the table from you is a full-blown naturalist who believes that all of reality is restricted to what you can taste, touch, feel, see, or hear. And if you're talking intrinsic dignity... And their worldview is the universe came from nothing and was caused by nothing. The whole blind watchmaker thesis, your talk of intrinsic value and dignity is falling right on deaf ears. You're going to talk right past each other. But imagine if you had the ability to engage that worldview and say, you know, I think one of the reasons why we're not having a meeting of the minds here is our starting points are radically different. Let's talk about those starting points. Or if you're talking to a postmodern person that thinks all of reality is socially constructed, that there is no God other than what our language community comes up with. Right and wrong are mere constructions of language. Well, if you're talking about abortion being an objective moral wrong to someone who thinks that the entire concept of objectivity is meaningless— well, that's going to stall your conversation. So, you need to know how to engage that postmodern mind. Now, the latest player we have to deal with is the whole wokeness worldview the idea that everything that's ultimately real is simply the product of racial systems that are unjust and power structures aimed at helping oppressors oppress those who are victims. That brings a whole new level because when you talk to that kind of person, they view you as a pro life advocate as an evil oppressor before the conversation even gets started. And by definition, you're evil because you're in that oppressor group, because anybody that's not an oppressor would want to make sure that a victim class like women get to have the choices they want. So as Christians, we need to understand these worldviews, particularly the naturalistic worldview, the postmodern worldview, and the now the woke or critical theory worldview.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do we balance engaging in the pro-life fight? Uh, strike a balance between engaging in the on the worldview level in dialogue with individuals, uh, but then also engaging in the political arena because these, at least in my mind, seem like two very different tactics. You know, in the political arena, we are seeking to leverage influence to uh, to change laws that will be that will be implemented, whether the person who disagrees with us likes them or not right that's the nature of laws whereas on the other hand we're using uh we're using persuasion to change uh as the saying goes hearts and minds uh so that an individual will through a compelling argument come to agree with us how do we balance out these two uh two different tactics uh should we give more effort and time into one or the other or should we uh, how do we go about doing both
1: well, it's often said that politics is downstream from culture. I would argue that culture is sometimes downstream from politics. So my answer to your question is Christians shouldn't do an either-or approach. We should do both. We should be politically gay, engaged and engaged trying to re- help the culture rethink uh, a biblical worldview and opt for it. I am troubled by Christians who think that we can bifurcate our Christian worldview by saying, oh— We apply our Christian worldview over here to every area except politics. Over here, that's an untouchable area. No, if you hold a biblical worldview, it impacts all of life, not just uh, this area over here, but not over here. And that means Christians need to think biblically about civic engagement. Uh, There's this temptation out there that politics— You know, we don't want to talk about abortion because it becomes politicized. Well, I got news for you. Every issue gets politicized eventually. It happens. Slavery got politicized. Segregation got politicized. That's not an excuse for Christians to check out because it's become political. We need to be political for a couple of reasons. Here's the first reason. Ultimately, pro-life victory is not defined as we reduce the number of abortions, though we want that to happen. A country that reduced racism but still left it legal for you to own black people as slaves would be a deeply immoral country even if the occurrence of slavery dropped or the occurrence of segregation dropped. It's evil because black people are image bearers and have a right to be protected like everybody else and we shouldn't discriminate against them that way. The same is true with the unborn. How do we know we've achieved victory? when the unborn are protected in law. Until that happens, we have not achieved victory. It's great that we reduce abortion. It's great that we help women facing crisis pregnancies, and we need to keep doing that. And by the way, we're doing that pretty well. Pro-life pregnancy centers outnumber abortion clinics at least two to one in this country. So we do love women even after they give birth. By the way, it's not pro-lifers who don't care about children after they're born. It's pro abortionist because every single Democrat in the U.S. Senate voted for a bill or voted against a bill that would protect children who survive abortion techniques. They're wow. the ones who won't protect children and care for them after birth, not pro-lifers. In fact, they're quite willing to let these children die rather than care for them after birth. So... I don't want to fall into this idea that they love children after birth and we don't No, The truth is we do love them and we love their mothers too. But I think we need to understand that our pro-life witness goes beyond just providing the social relief. We need to contend for legal protection for unborn humans that are being targeted and unjustly uh, so to be destroyed. We've got to step in and do that. And if we don't think protecting a million innocent lives a year is worthy of political engagement, I think there's something really wrong with our biblical worldview. Imagine if you were a slave, Aaron, in 1860 on a slave ship outside Charleston Harbor. And while you were sitting in there, and you're a Christian slave, while you're sitting in there, would you be praying that your brothers and sisters on land would get politically engaged to free you from your awful situation that you're in? I think you would be and you and and Christians should be working to to free that free you from that uh that's all I'm saying. We need to have a holistic approach to our biblical and pro-life worldview applies to politics because ultimately that's victory. We get legal protection for unborn humans
0: absolutely. I think you explained it very very well. And you know, I used to be one of those who had more of that bifurcated vision, as you talked about before, where, you know, Christians are supposed to stay out of the political arena, that our, that our faith doesn't apply to political engagement and the way that uh, laws and society is ordered. And over the years, I've really started to understand just how wrong that thinking was. You know, uh, we say that Jesus declares his lordship over every square inch of creation. Well, that's going to include the state. That's going to include the how society is ordered. Um, That's an inescapable fact, even whether somebody likes it or not. And so as Christians who think that way and are obeying the Lordship of Christ, we look at the laws that order our society and we ask, well, are they just or not? If they are not in line with, uh, with what Christ says is just, then they're unjust. And we as believers who... Live in a democratic republic, a free society, and who therefore have the opportunity to pursue change with the uh, means that we are given. uh, Yeah, and let me add another biblical from God to do that.
1: Yeah, and let me add another biblical principle here. In Scripture, God holds sovereigns responsible for upholding justice for the weak and vulnerable. In a Mm -hmm. constitutional republic like ours, who is the sovereign, Aaron? We are. That means God's going to hold us responsible for whether we acted on behalf of those who need protection. And we're not going to get a pass on this by saying, "Oh, you know what? We fought the good fight by not getting involved in politics. We made sure our people knew God that you weren't a Republican." And we did, we got that message out there. I don't think the Lord's going to say, "Oh, I'm so glad you convinced people I wasn't a Republican, but you turned your back on innocent human beings that were being butchered." In the name of not being political, I just don't see that working on Judgment Day.
0: So whenever we're engaging, whether it be in the public square, um, you know, for laws that are just, you know, i.e. that are aligned with scripture uh, or whether we're dealing with the individual on the worldview level, we should be referring to scripture. (laughs) We should be using the Bible. So what is the biblical case for the uh, for the pro-life position? Is the Bible pro-life or is this something that Christians just kind of developed? Uh, Well, two thoughts on that.
1: First of all, I don't think we need to start with Scripture when we're talking to unbelievers. It's okay to use arguments that will resonate with them, especially when you're talking to people who think religious truth doesn't count as real knowledge, that it's a mere subjective opinion. I will eventually get to Scripture with them, but I may not lead with that. But biblically, here's our argument, and I may surprise some of your viewers right now. We're not going to go to Psalm 139. I, I don't think that's the best place to go, because a critic will, will rightly point out that that passage is poetic in nature, and a proper way of approaching hermeneutics is not to read little, literal meaning, meanings into poetic passages. It doesn't mean those passages are not real. It does not mean they're not authoritative. It does not mean they're not inspired. It just means you interpret the book of Romans a little bit differently than you do the Psalms or the book of Job. Uh, It's a different type of literature with different interpretive rules. So what I want to do is build a case from Scripture that would stand up even if I grant that nowhere does the Bible condemn abortion directly, and nowhere does it directly state the unborn are human, and I can still make a case from the Bible that the Bible is pro-life. So here's my argument. Premise 1. Scripture teaches that all humans have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis 1 teaches that in the Old Covenant, James 3 in the New. Premise 2. Because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Exodus 23 teaches that. Proverbs six sixteen to 19 teaches that. Matthew 5, 21 references that. All right, let's take those first two premises. All humans have value because they bear the image of God. And because they bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood, meaning the intentional killing of innocent human beings, is strictly forbidden. The only question we need to ask right now is, are the unborn human Because if they are, the commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to them as they do everyone else. And we know from the science of embryology, we've known this for 150 years, that from the earliest stages of development, from the one-cell stage, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. Therefore, the commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to them as they do us. I think that's the way to go in Scripture, because it takes away from the critic the objection, oh, you're just using a poetic passage. Now, I think we could argue from Psalm 139 if we weren't dealing with critics looking for a way out, but this takes away their loophole if we just go straight to the fact that Scripture teaches all humans have value because they bear the image of God, and because of that, the shedding of innocent blood is forbidden, leaves us with only one question, which is always the question in the abortion debate, what is the unborn? If they're human, The same commands against shedding innocent blood apply to them as they do everybody else.
0: Yeah. Another way that I've heard it put is, at what point does a human become a person? You know, because people will sometimes grant, okay, biologically, we cannot deny that even an embryo is human. Correct? Uh, Just as its species. Uh, But when does it become a person with rights? So let's go into that question now. Uh, sure. So at what point does, uh, does a human become a person or however you want to put that um, and, uh, and, and then have rights?
1: Well, I think we need to push back against the premise of the question before we do anything else. Why should I believe that there can be such a thing as a human that's not a person? I'm going to make the critic Mm. defend that. I'm not going to let that assumption just go sail through. I mean, have you ever met a human that's not a person? If you have teenagers, (laughs) don't answer that question. But outside of that, have you ever met a human that's not a person? Tell me what that is. And the truth is this dichotomy This bifurcation between human being and human person is an invention, an arbitrary invention invented by people who want to set aside one class of human beings we can intentionally kill from another class of human beings that we can't. And they need to argue for why there can be such a thing before I'm going to even go down that rabbit hole with them. I'm going to make them bear the burden of proof on why I should believe there should be such a thing as a human who's not a person. But after that, here's the problem with personhood arguments. Number one, they're arbitrary. Critics who raise the personhood objection never tell us why the traits they've picked out is decisive, whether it be self-awareness, ability to feel pain, viability, physical development, whatever they pull out of their rabbit hat. Yeah. Why are those traits decisive in the first place? They need to argue for that, not merely assert it. I could just as easily assert that what makes me a person is I have a belly button that points out rather than in, and I would be no less arbitrary than they are. They Mm. have to argue for why those traits matter in the first place. But the second problem is each one of those traits results in an argument that proves way more than most people want to prove. Those traits, let's take, for example, self-awareness. We now know that infants are not self-aware until they're pushing age two. So this argument would not only justify abortion, it would justify killing toddlers. In fact, some of the more honest abortion advocates make this point and concede it. People like Jeff McMahon, people like uh, Kate Greasley, people like Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, they all admit their arguments justify infanticide as much as they do abortion. Uh, so you're going to get more than you bargain for. But thirdly, and here's the real devastating one, it results in savage inequality. We've got to ask the question, Aaron, what makes you and I valuable in the first place? Let's say we pick out physical development. Planned Parenthood, for example, says, well, until you're developed to a certain level, you don't have a right to life. If development is what gives me value, as Planned Parenthood asserts, and you have more development than me, you have a greater right to life than me i can tell you right now at age 62 i'm probably not going to beat you in one-on-one basketball even though i played in high school i still got the three-point shot that's pretty good but i'm too slow to get open for it if viability or development is rather development is what gives me my value and you function at a higher level in that arena than i do you have a greater right to life than me and human equality is out the window Pick self-awareness. Hopefully you had a cup of of Joe before you went on this interview. And I know I did. I downed my Coke Zero in my coffee, my black coffee, as I do every morning. And right now my synapses are firing on all cylinders. But I'll tell you what, without that shot of coffee, I'm an agnostic until my third cup each morning. But if self-awareness or cognitive ability is what gives us value and not a common human nature we all share equally from the moment we begin to exist, then again, human equality is out the window because those with more of those traits that are arbitrarily selected will have greater rights than those with less. The only argument for human equality that works is to say that the one thing we all share equally, you, me, every listener to this podcast, every person that uh, is off on his way to work today or her work today, The one thing we all share equally, and it doesn't come in degrees, is that we all have the same human nature that as Christians we know bears the image of our maker. Now, what do we mean by nature? I can see some viewers right now going, that sounds very, you know, abstract. You're getting all up in the uh, abstract level here. Let's just put it this way. All living things have natures that determine the kind of things that they are. For example, if you have a goldfish... Your pet goldfish has a goldfish nature. If you have a dog, your dog has a canine nature. If you have a cat, it has a satanic nature. Do you get the idea? The idea being that all living things have natures that determine the kind of thing they are. You are a human being with a human nature. Now, if we ground human equality and dignity in our common human nature that doesn't come in degrees we have a solid basis for equal rights, because all humans will have those rights, regardless their level of functioning. But the minute we take it out of our common human nature and place it in traits that come and go, that none of us share equally, you no longer have a solid basis for human equality and human dignity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and that is a argument that has to be made today, because postmodernism, even if people don't, label it that, uh, denies that there's such a thing as human nature and that uh, we're, you know, just biological organisms and whatever supposed nature we show is really just uh, conditioning by the social constructs.
1: And sadly, I've heard, Aaron, a lot of Christians fall into this trap. They don't intend to, but they do it. When you ask the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I've heard sermons where a pastor will go on for an hour talking it's about our ability to have a moral sense of right and wrong. It's about our ability to commune with God. It's about our self-awareness over time. And they make those things what it means to be made in the image of God when Scripture nowhere says that. But the problem with those arguments are you've picked out a trait that nobody shares equally with the next guy in the room, and you're basically then linking the image of God to traits that come and go and that none of us have equally when the scripture doesn't say that. Scripture seems to teach all humans have value, and it just seems to be simply because they're human. They're image bearers. That's all it's saying there. There's not a lot of description in scripture about what it means to be made in the image of God, and all the ink that's been spilled on that question is largely unsatisfactory to me. I think the guy that's done the best work on this is John Kilner at Trinity Evangelical Seminary. He's done a great Job, he's written a voluminous book, several hundred pages, arguing that if you look in scripture for clear description of what it means to be in the image of God, you'll find nothing that affirms certain traits. It's all about what your nature is. If you have a human nature, you're made in the image of God, period. That's it. And I think he makes a very profound and compelling case for that.
0: Yeah. In the time that we have left i want to get into some of the hard questions uh i know that our listeners are, have probably have questions all in the back of their mind that they are eager to hear you answer uh let's start with one uh well actually all three of these are in your uh uh no two out of the three that i was thinking you're in your book um uh, the first one is the coat hanger objection as you put it in the book uh which is something along the lines of if abortion is made illegal well then women who are needing abortions quote unquote needing Uh, will, uh, you know, seek unsafe, unsanitary, dangerous methods.
1: Well, the first thing I'm going to do is show empathy. A lot of times what pro-lifers do is they go to statistics. Well, women didn't die by the thousands prior to Roe v. Wade. And that's true. They didn't. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the first thing you ought to do when somebody brings up a woman dying is say, you know what, I agree with you. That's a tragedy. We should mourn the loss of any woman who dies from an abortion, whether it's legal or illegal. You and I agree on that. All right, that at least humanizes you as you engage this question. But notice something about the objection. First of all, it assumes the unborn aren't human. It doesn't argue for it. It just assumes it. Because otherwise, what you're saying is is that because some innocent people will die, attempting to intentionally kill other innocent people— we ought to make it safe and legal for them to do it. I mean, should we legalize bank robbery so that it's safer for felons? What's wrong with saying you shouldn't be allowed to intentionally kill innocent human beings? We don't say let's make it easier to intentionally kill innocent human beings. So the whole objection assumes the unborn aren't human, which means it's question begging. It's assuming the very thing it's trying to prove. But then we can then point out that statistically, We have no reason to believe women are going to die by the millions, or thousands even, if Roe v. Wade is restricted. Let's just take a current example. Abortion has been de facto illegal in a handful of states now. Texas, uh, currently in Wisconsin, though that will change with the changing of their Supreme Court there, and other states, a handful of states where it's been all but restricted. Are we seeing reports anywhere in the news of women dying or being harmed from illegal abortions? No. Because this whole thing was a myth that was made up prior to Roe v. Wade to try to get the press on board pushing for abortion rights. And to prove Mm -hmm. that, I'm not going to take you to pro-life sources. I'm going to take you to four pro-abortion sources that say this whole thing was made up. Source number one, Christopher Tietz, Planned Parenthood statistician during the 60s and 70s, when allegedly, we we are told, women were dying by the thousands, up to 5 to 10,000 a year from illegal abortion. Tietz says the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year from illegal abortion is, quote, unmitigated nonsense, unquote. That's not a pro-life guy. That's Planned Parenthood's own statistician. Next pro-abortion source, Daniel Callahan, in his book, Abortion Law, Morality and Choice, says it's mathematically impossible, not improbable, impossible, that up to five to 10,000 women a year were dying from illegal abortion, one source when the total number of deaths from women of reproductive age each year is about 35,000, to claim that 10,000 alone come from one source, illegal abortion, is preposterous, he argues. Again, not a pro-life guy, a pro-abortion guy. Third pro-abortion source, Dr. Mary Calderon, Planned Parenthood's medical director during the 60s and 70s argued in an American Journal of Public Health article that the death rate from illegal abortion at that time was so low, it wasn't even worth commenting on. However, she did offer a few additional comments. She said, number one, 90% of all illegal abortions were being done by doctors in good standing in their community, not a rego with a rusty coat hanger in the back alley somewhere. These were being done by certified doctors who simply skirted the law. Second thing she pointed out, The death rate from abortion was low because the widespread introduction of penicillin made all surgical procedures safer people were not getting post-op infections the way they used to thanks to penicillin so abortion became less dangerous because of the introduction of penicillin Uh, the fourth source i'll cite is dr bernard nathanson who before he was pro-life he eventually became pro-life due to the evidence of the science of embryology but before that he argued in his book, Aborting America, that he had presided over 60,000 deaths, and he made the claim that the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year from illegal abortion was made up out of thin air, that he and his colleague, Dr. Lawrence Later, the co-founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League, made it up just to sell it to the press, knowing they would run with it. So notice I have not cited any pro-life sources for those statistics. They're all pro-abortion sources
0: yeah that's excellent and if you guys read um the story of abortion in america by um
1: marvin alasky
0: yes alasky and uh Savas, i had lee on the podcast earlier this year yeah. uh they go through they go through uh the creation of that narrative but they also show going back to the 1700s um pretty much colonial era in america uh just how rare even back then uh, deaths from abortion were there were cases of course that's right there were times where it was incredibly dangerous um but even back then it was uh, very rare we probably have time just for one more of these hard questions and that one is the uh the objection of hard cases what about cases where there is rape or uh cases where the mother's life is at stake that's one that as a pastor i get very often
1: yeah Well, let's let's start with the one the mother's life is in danger. I can think of an example where that's true, ectopic pregnancy. This is where the embryo implants in the inner wall of the fallopian tube instead of the uterine cavity wall. As that embryo grows in that narrow tube, you can imagine the danger to the mother. That tube ruptures, she hemorrhages to death internally, you lose the child, you lose the mother. So if you're a pro-life doctor and you have a Uh, a real case here of ectopic pregnancy in front of you, what do you do? Do you do nothing and let two humans die? Or do you act in such a way that you save one life, even though the unintended but foreseen result is the death of the embryo? I'm going to act to save the mother. And somebody says right away, wait a minute, that's abortion. No, it's not. We, We define abortion very carefully. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Do we intend the death of the unborn in this case? No, we do not. We are acting to save the mother. We foresee the death of the embryo as a side effect that we do not intend. We foresee it, but don't intend it. Where with abortion, we both foresee and intend the death of the child. So the two are not parallel. I could also make the argument that in acting to save the mother, I have not made the embryo worse off. By removing him from his pathological condition, where he will die, uh, and placing him outside the mother's body, I have not made him worse off. He will die in the tube. He will die outside. The fact I don't have a rescue mission for him planned out does not mean I've made him worse off. At least then I'm able to do the greatest good I can, which is to save the one life in front of me and not lose two because I failed to act.
0: Hmm.
1: On rape, yeah. yeah. on the rape question, yeah. two types of people are going to bring up rape, Aaron. The inquirer and the crusader, and you're going to treat them differently as a pro-life apologist. The Let's start with the bad guy, the crusader. He doesn't want you to answer the question. He's bringing up rape to make you look bad. Oh, you're just such an extremist. You would deny a woman who's been raped an abortion. You would force her to give birth to a kid that will forever remind her of what she went through. What kind of cruel, awful human being are you? That's really what he's saying. So I'm going to call his bluff. I'm going to say, okay, let's say we allow abortion in cases of rape. Will you now join me in opposing all other abortions that have nothing to do with rape? Of course, his answer, 100% of the time, will be no. Abortion is a fundamental right. Women should be free to exercise. We shouldn't infringe on it. Okay, let's defend that then. Why don't you defend that view that there should be no restrictions on abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason? Defend that extremist view rather than hiding behind rape victims as a shield for what you truly believe. The the crusader, I'm going to call his bluff, but the inquirer, I'm going to be very gentle with. The inquirer is, let I'll just give an example here of a recent speech. I gave a talk and a young woman asked about rape, and clearly I could tell she had followed the moral logic of my view. She was buying into my argument. So when she brought brought up rape, I did not immediately go to statistics the way that a lot of pro-lifers do. They typically say, well, most women who get raped don't get pregnant. That's a bad answer. You were just told about a woman who's been Uh, methodically assaulted, our first response should be empathy. And I looked at this young woman. I said, you know what? You and I share a, a common concern here. This young woman has been violated. She has been treated horribly, and we need to show her all the respect and love we can. I agree with you on that. You know what else I agree with you on? It's also true that not only do we need to show her love and respect, it's also true that this child could provoke painful memories for her. I agree with you on that. And then I said this very gently, again, no sarcasm, given you and I agree on those two points, how do you think a civil society should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? And I let the question just hang there for a second. Then again, very gently, I followed up with this. Is it okay to intentionally kill human beings that remind us of something painful? And she said, no. And we right away, we had some common ground to work with there. Hardship doesn't justify homicide. If I had a two-year-old, again, notice how the objection assumes the unborn aren't human. If I had a two-year-old in front of me whose father was a rapist, and the mother wanted to kill the two-year-old so she wouldn't be reminded of what she went through, would anybody say that's okay to do? No, of course not. They only say that about the unborn because they begin with the assumption they're not human. And that's precisely the question we need to answer in the abortion debate, what is the unborn that is always the question it comes down to
0: yeah yeah that's really good uh it, like i said i get those questions uh very often as a pastor uh, particularly about ectopic pregnancies and and yeah. so on and even there i think that you know we're also having to fight against uh media narratives that are against us because the media claims that pro lifers think that women should just be allowed to die you know whenever they have these ectopic yeah. pregnancies so people just assume that that is what, you know, I believe or of us believe, and uh, which certainly isn't the case. It's a hard ethical question to walk through, but uh, one where we can still very much answer the question without, you know, sacrificing uh, the truth and sacrificing the pro-life convictions that we have.
1: Yeah, and there's an important distinction we can make here that helps people sometimes. There's a difference between psychological complexity and objective moral complexity. Here's an objectively moral complex question. You're on a horse and you're fleeing from attackers, and you come across a small toddler playing on a narrow bridge that you must cross to get away from your attackers. Is it okay to continue on your journey to avoid being killed, or must you stop to protect the, the life of the child, even though it certainly means your own death? Okay, that's, that's a complex question morally. But it's not complex to say we shouldn't intentionally kill innocent human beings. However, it may be psychologically complex in this regard. Let's say you hear about a 14 year old girl you know. Her parents are going to kick her out of the house for being pregnant. Her boyfriend's threatening to dump her if she doesn't have an abortion. Her Christian school's going to kick her out because she's pregnant. And she's getting no support anywhere. Do we feel sympathy for her? I hope so. And that sympathy we feel means psychologically it seems complex to us but morally it doesn't follow there's no right answer
0: mm, that's a good point well there is a lot a lot more that we could talk about more that i wish we had time to get into but maybe we'll just have to save those for another day we'll talk again down the road uh once again guys Uh, We've been talking to Scott Klusendorf and his book. There's a second edition coming out in November, uh, expected November 14th, the second edition of The Case for Life. That's what we've been talking about mostly and uh, referring to sections from there. There is far more in the book that we didn't even have time to get into here. So if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, definitely make sure that you uh, pick up a copy of the book. I'll have it linked in the show notes below. So if you click on the link to the show notes, you can pick up your copy there. Uh, I'll also have uh, Life Training Institute, uh, Scott's organization that he works with, uh, links in the show notes as well. Uh, Scott, anything else that you want to point our listeners to before we go? Yeah, I would add this,
1: that those of you that have the first edition of The Case for Life, you'll be happy to know the second edition is not just a slick repackage of the same stuff. Mm -hmm. There's 44% new material, eight new chapters, 10 rewritten chapters. I've got brand new sections on there on the worldviews behind the abortion debate, which we touched on in this discussion. There's a whole section on who are the academic players and what are their basic arguments and how can we respond to them. People like the new kid on the block, Kate Greasley over at Oxford, who is quite the winsome apologist for the other side, and you need to be aware of what she's arguing and how to respond. There's a whole section on what does a pro-life church look like, and then a whole section on how you can become— a pro-life apologist in the community where you live, and I even give you a plan for reaching 250 people in your own community that's not hard to execute if you just follow the plan. So those are just a few of the peeks into the new material that's coming out.
0: Yeah, thank you for reminding us of that. This is a significant uh, second
1: edition. Major uh, upgrade. This is not yes. a repackage. Yes. It, In fact, it almost, I told my wife to kill me if I ever agree to do an update of this sort again. It's more work than starting a new book from scratch. I told her to kill I, I me, imagine. and I'm pro life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine. No, I, I think other publishers might have just given it a new name, you know, and treated it almost as a completely different. Well, book I'm grateful that Crossway it
1: kept the name because the book is branded with me quite heavily, and I mm-hmm. think it does follow the idea of making that case for life very well. So I'm glad we retained the title, but I will tell you, it was a chore, and I'm glad that that chore is now behind me and I get to wait for the finished product.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, if you're thinking about getting it, uh, it will be an absolutely worthy investment of not only your money, but your time in reading it, and uh, I believe the fruit will come out of it. So, Scott, thanks so much again for joining us on the show today. I really enjoyed this conversation, and it's been a pleasure to have you on Filter.
1: Thank you, Aaron. It's joy's all mine.